We are here today with Stephanie Danler. Stephanie Danler is a novelist, memoirist, and screenwriter. She is the author of Stray, a memoir, as well as the international bestseller Sweet Bitter. Her work has appeared in the Sewanee Review, Vogue, the New York Times Book Review, and the Paris Review Daily. Her nonfiction received an honorable mention in the Best American Essays of 2018, and her criticism won the 2019 Robert B. Highland Award from the Sewanee Review. Stephanie is also the creator and executive producer of Sweet Bitter TV series. How's that for a multi-hyphenate? Thank you so much for joining us today, Stephanie. Thank you both so much for having me. I've been wanting to do this podcast forever, so I'm very excited. For those who might be missing out, can you tell us a little bit about Stray? Oh boy. Stray is a memoir that I wrote about moving back to California, which is the place that I was born and raised. And it's about confronting the ghosts that I found there when I moved back. Those ghosts are my parents who are both addicts who are in various stages of recovery and require quite a lot of care sometimes. And then the story is also about falling in love with the wrong people and the right people and trying to make choices that are good for you and not self-destructing mm-hmm. constantly, which seems to be the damage that I have inherited from my parents, this inclination towards what will hurt me as opposed to what will help me. Oh, we're going to talk a lot about that. (laughs) I relate to that impulse. So it will be done with curiosity and interest, nothing else. So we're going to dive more into the book, Stray. But first, I want to set up the context. Stray was really not the obvious next step after Sweet Bitter. You decided to commit to this memoir when you were really tied to this identity as a New Yorker, as someone in the food and wine industry, and as someone who was writing fiction. And yet you moved to California, posted more poems than plates of food, and then decided you were going to write nonfiction, write a memoir. Was it tiny little steps or was it a real pivot at once? How did that come about? When you say it like that, it feels more intentional than it felt living through it. I think stray in relation to Sweet Bitter, there is a side of it that was a reaction towards talking about myself constantly for over a year or talking about that book, the assumption that Sweet Bitter was autobiographical. Having lived with that story and that version of my 20s, which wasn't my 20s at all, for so many years when you add the television show to it, that I do think that I was investigating like what's true about me? What are the assumptions people make? What are the assumptions that I make that aren't necessarily true about myself? But I did sell Knopf a novel and I wanted to (laughs) stay with fiction. It's what I've studied my whole life. I hadn't read a lot of memoir at the time. And so at my core, I was really just pursuing what felt white hot, what felt like it was the most urgent thing that I could possibly write. And I'm not kidding when I say that I did not want to write it. I wanted to write anything else. And I wrote an essay for Vogue about my father's crystal meth addiction. The first draft came out in a week. 
And then I was like, I'm never going to publish this. I tried to pull it twice. from, yep. And so it was two steps forward, one step back for many, many years. And then when I sat down to really put a first draft of Stray together, I committed to a memoir. I wrote it in nine weeks after yeah. four years of tussling with what it would mean. And I really am grateful that I wasn't thinking about my persona or sweet bitter or what was a mo- the most calculated move. I can say genuinely it never crossed my mind, but probably subconsciously there was a little bit of pushback to whatever people believed about me after the sweet, bitter experience. I love that you said, what is true about me? That We're going to talk about that a little bit more too. It's an interesting question and can you answer it? And does it change? I think it does change. People assume that truth is static, that it can't contradict itself constantly. That seems to be the antithesis of what truth is. And so I am definitely more in the camp that finds truth to be a fluid concept and something that you have to constantly reground yourself in before the story becomes really outdated. So you've talked about your impulse to destroy. You've already mentioned it earlier here, but most notably in your stunning essay, The Unravelers, and also about setting aside that inclination in yourself when you found out you were pregnant. We'd love for you to read this section and and honestly talk about whatever aspect speaks to you. An hour later, the initial shock fading, I felt a loss. It came in the form of, I can't kill myself. It wasn't a longing for death in that moment, but a longing for a longing which is equal parts nostalgia and grief. Those interminable drives, fogged with depression or mania, where my breathing matched the mantra, I can die, I can die. An assurance passed down to me from my mother, who believed in verbalizing her desire for death even when I was a child. Upon losing the ability to fantasize about dying, I saw for the first time that there had been something tender in my attachment to it. It was something that was ours. I understood that when she said it, she'd meant only kindness. There's so much in that paragraph. Yeah. What speaks to you as you read it now? Yeah. Now I am seeing some of us learn how to be intimate only through damage or pain, right? That my mother and I weren't connected by joy, but by our shared sense that we weren't quite fit for the world or that living was a hurtful proposition, one that we could only get relief from by dying. You know, talking about suicidal impulses is a really fraught topic because it's so serious and suicidal ideations sometimes is not that serious. And I don't mean to say that if whoever is listening is thinking about killing themselves, that it's not serious, but that in my life and a lot of women that I've been close to, it's much more common than I think we're allowed to say. You say it to a therapist and they like have to press like a panic button under the desk, but it's such a big Part. It has been such a big part of my life. And as I've gotten older, right, getting past being a 16-year-old who felt this impulse and was scared, am I going to kill myself? I'm now at the point where I'm, and I was before I had children, I'm not going to do that. But what I was trying to do was exercise control on an environment that I had no control over. And I was trying to mitigate pain. And it's the same impulse as taking drugs in a way, which is I want out. Whatever's happening right now, 
now, I cannot bear to be in it for a second. And so give me a way out. It's such a consolation. Yeah, it's such a consolation. And so when I was pregnant, I lost that almost immediately, which isn't to say that if you're pregnant and you're still thinking that anything is wrong with you, but I, there was a tension within myself that I could not reconcile, which is my old coping mechanism is up against a new life and the promise of more, more pain, more joy. Everything that I thought that I had under control is about to be ripped open again. I will have to relearn everything. And this one's got to go. I wonder if it's because it's connected to your mother and you were now becoming a mother. So you could easily unhook here and then hook it on to you becoming a mother. That could be. Because I know I mentioned earlier, I have had that my whole life, that impulse to destroy. And mine did not go away when I got pregnant, not with my son or my daughter. And instead of getting rid of it or acting like I should or have to, I was able to channel it into motherhood. I think I can die more productive and healthier deaths as a mother because I find motherhood is constantly changing and it is separating from an old identity. Being a mother to one is different from being a mother to two and being a mother to a baby is different from being a mother to a toddler to elementary school kids. And so it's a reinvention that allows me to break myself down in a way that I think is actually healthy, but also serves that itch and that need that I've always had and I never was able to let go of. Yeah. And I, I want to just be clear that when I'm doing press for this book, there's a really easy binary to draw between like unhealthy and healthy parts of my life. Like in the book, I'm struggling with my own substance abuse and struggling with self-worth and struggling with distracting myself in really unhealthy ways. And all of a sudden I'm a mom and I don't drink as much or I don't do recreational drugs anymore. Or, And the impulse hasn't gone anywhere. Just some of the old ways that, you, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, what yeah. I have lost. So I agree with you. Like, and they're healthy is just like such a virtuous kind of yeah. like yeah, bullshit yeah. cover all yeah. term. Yes, like yes. I've made healthy choices. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what kind of choices I've made like that is something that we only learn in retrospect and which is scary when you have a kid because you're like what was this a huge mistake or the greatest thing I've ever done I think about that all the time I'm like right now I'm screwing them up I don't even know how I'm doing my best and I'm doing pretty good I'm not even like my parents the way I'd say my parents did their best but still there were lots of things you could point to but I don't even know what it is it won't be until they grow up and that's when you'll know but yeah, I, I get it. It is yeah. a word that gets overused, but it does also serve a purpose. You had talked about this, though, on Instagram. You had mentioned that so many things about yourself were not true, even as of three years ago, when I think when you first found out you were pregnant and you've had to, again, kind of shed old identities. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And what you were saying earlier about motherhood is so true. It is the definition of never stepping in the same river twice. You feel as you are in your late 20s or early 30s, you feel concrete. You notice little changes, but to be with a child who changes or learns a new word every single 
day. It upends any idea that you could have about constancy or truth as we were talking about earlier. And so I think it's funny to look back at how rigid I was about who I am because I can't do that right now. Like I can't tell you, but the most benign one is I still sometimes will be like, yeah, in conversation, yeah, I'm a runner, you know, I love to run. <laughs> I haven't been on a run in three <laughs> years. I don't even know where those clothes are in my house. I mean, I exercise like four times a week and I would say that it's my natural antidepressant. And if I exercise, it's such a part of my discipline writing day. I mean, you guys, I like take a walk around the block mm. pushing the, I can't push the double stroller i'm like my husband's gotta do it's like uphill too yeah, much you, cardio I was gonna say, you live me. in a lot a hilly place when i would yeah. see women jogging with the double stroller i was like kudos to i don't i you're, i was with you i was like i can't even push this thing let alone no. run with it yeah and so i think with that example actually right. which seems superficial but is actually a huge part of every discussion that women are having which is how to take care of my body after my body has just been yeah legitimately ripped open yeah Um, it's like what is going to work now who am i now what does this 37 year old body need that my 34 year old body didn't need or didn't i didn't know it wanted and that sort of questioning is frustrating because it's work to figure out right like you Mm -hmm. don't have like i ran for 15 years and it's like that's who i but instead i have to like spend a moment with myself and i feel like that is the problem we don't have time right who has the the time to like spend a moment figuring out what Mm -hmm. is going to best serve me you go back to things that worked 20 years ago as if it was yesterday and it's not true anymore yeah it doesn't fit. Like yeah. my pre-pregnancy jeans I just threw away. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's not going to happen. No. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, it's over. Don't need to hang on to those anymore. Well, you've been talking a lot about body. And in that same post, you also wrote, three years of my body doing miraculous, scary shit and these two incredible creatures to show for it. I don't believe that motherhood is the highest good. And I resent being told that my entire life. But it is by far the craziest thing I've ever done. And I really wanted to talk about that because that really hit me. I have such a complex complicated relationship with motherhood in this way in that it is something awe-inspiring what your body does without ever having to teach it what to do that it knows and then there are other things that you think you should know how to do that'll come naturally and then they don't it's very mysterious and also I find mysterious things just fascinating and my kids teaching them and raising them is such an important part of my life but I hardly ever talk about them because I'm afraid some of the things I think, I'm like, this sounds like I am poster child for the patriarchy when I think these things. And I don't want to Obviously, I think women can do anything and and one thing doesn't fit all. But I know I feel in awe of my body and what it's done and also the commitment that I put into teaching and raising my kids. And I, I just struggle with that. And it sounded like in that that you do, too. It's like, how do we be in awe of it without acting like that's all we can ever be or or do? Yes. I mean, what you just said is the conundrum that I think that most of us feel like I felt so I never wanted to be a mother really until I became a mother I was like 
kind of on the fence. And the expectations of what motherhood should look like, which was fed to me by the media and my own mother and friends, clearly not telling the truth, was so wildly (laughs) different than what I was experiencing. And I've had a lot of time to think about, not a lot of time because my eldest is two in some change, but because I've had these back-to-back pregnancies, I've been thinking about it a lot. (laughs) And I think part of it is that we have just been trained to not ask for help or to not think of those problems as worthy. I think that postpartum depression for a long time was sort of vilified that it meant that you were going to kill your kids or harm yourself in some way. Like all depression, there's a scale. When you start to look at the lower end of that scale, I would say most of the women I talk to have felt some kind of disconnect between the overwhelming love that you're told you're going to feel the second your child lands in your arms and what you actually feel when your child lands in your arms, which is probably some combination of exhaustion and grief shock too yeah Yeah. Yeah. shock and confusion you can read all you want and at the same time from the second that child lands in your arms the gun has been fired the race has begun and you'll never keep up you'll never be ahead of it not for one second (laughs) but but when you're reading the fucking pregnancy books you're like i'm ahead of this oh i'll start reading a book on toddler development and i'll get ahead of this and no you will never be and worse when you have a second and you're like okay i have this figured out no No. the second one comes with their own agenda their own personality yes right and they also upend the tenuous kind of piece that you may have achieved bothers me it bothers me as an artist that the pressures of motherhood are so ingrained in me that and i've heard this a million times i'm just failing at both things and so or I'm like half doing both things all the time I resent men I remember in like the postpartum haze of having my son Julian just sobbing and being like I should have been a man this isn't fair this isn't fair (laughs) breastfeeding's not fair and then you jump on the internet and you've got some woman like in a sun dappled room breastfeeding like it's the most joy and again I'm having a much different experience with my second child. This is all to say that I did not get the memo. And so when I write, I am trying to make space for all kinds of conversations. When I write that post on Instagram, I get flooded. And the reason that's the reason I write it is because there are mothers who I've connected with and who were a part of my pregnancy journey. And so many people are feeling this and they don't know how to say it. And so it's just about making space in the conversation for a variety of experiences. And what I will never forget is my good friend, who's an incredible mother, telling me before my son came, get ready for the bliss out. And I am like, oh, hell no. (laughs) What? Is a bliss out? And what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? And it's only through experience that I can say I wasn't doing anything wrong. My sister had a baby right after me, and I she also had a really hard time, which I'm sure she doesn't mind me sharing on this very public forum. And I ended up flying. <laughs> to be with her in the middle of the pandemic. My daughter was nine weeks old and I got there and she had a two week old. And I was like, oh my gosh, 
I <laughs> hope I never have to see a two-week-old baby ever again. Like, everything that was happening in her house was totally normal, but I had just come through it, and I was just like, oh, oh yeah. terrible. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that was my experience too. But I love that you said just the point is keeping the conversation open for all kinds of experiences because that's where you don't get into the danger zone of saying like motherhood is bliss out. No, it can be. Some people have the bliss out. Some people very much do not. But keeping that that space. I love that. And I want to know what you're thinking that makes you a mouthpiece for the patriarchy. Sometimes uh, this is going to be like a quote from this. So let me put this, this is in context. I have conversations with Corinne all the time and I was, I was going to ask the same thing. I was going to do it offline, but I love that you're asking. What does that mean though? Go ahead, Stephanie, put it in context. Yeah. For me, when I heard that, I say this to people all the time. I wish women's liberation had never happened. I am like ready to be a kept woman with just the house as my domain. And my husband's like, you would hate it. You would hate it. And I was like, I don't think I would hate it. (laughs) Eventually probably would. But there is a time when you're like, I just want to just worry about this. I can't also be ambitious and also be all of these other things. I just need to narrow my lens right now. Yeah, that's one of them for sure. And then I don't know, I was obsessed. I had a horrible birth with my son. My daughter's birth was incredible. By the way, my son's birth was not horrible. Well, I mean, I did hemorrhage. You did almost die. I did hemorrhage I mean, and almost die. Yes, but I was in a hospital, and so they. I mean, it really, all things considered, it was. It was serious. Pretty though. bad. That's serious. like pretty high on this risk yeah. and yeah. the scariness. But here's the thing: I still think I love giving birth. I like. I want to just give birth to kids. I don't necessarily want to keep see kids kind of horrified. I don't see these things out loud. Well, we know there's, we're going to get to the wound question, yes, but yeah. I, I'm previewing it, but we know you have, now we're really, this is just current on the couch now. We're going to, we know you have a wound around something around babies oh, or well, being motherhood or yeah. childbirth. So now we're getting into this a little bit. Yeah, no, you want to just it have babies? It spreads from, oh my God, you know, well, Kate, you do know that part I do of it. Know I was this. saying to Kate, one of my ex-boyfriends, and this may come out, but one of my ex-boyfriends <laughs> used to like pull me back in by being like, oh, but we'd have such cute babies together and he wanted a big family and I'm like oh god I'm in I'm just saying no and we joke about this no man has ever wooed me by saying let's have babies together like that's not the way to my Uh -uh. heart right no if Corinne it's something about (laughs) I don't know what it is I don't know I don't know no we really are we're going in a whole other direction (laughs) but we're leading to my oh go ahead no but to go back to my what Corinne was saying and my Instagram post is there anything crazier you can do besides give birth? It's crazy. It's crazier than jumping out of a plane. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. There's nothing crazier. And I hope that dying is the flip side of that, where mm. it is just, it won't be as intense. It doesn't seem like it's as intense, but there's nothing that can top giving birth. And we were born with this anatomy that means that we can do it. I know. And so what does that mean? I mean, you're just an adrenaline junkie. You don't want the babies. You just just want the high. Oh, and I hate pregnancy too, but the giving birth is just so... So we need to get together because I... Yes, you were great great at pregnancy. I'm great at pregnancy. People are always like, you should have had 10 babies. I'm like, yeah, I don't like babies that much though. I mean, so... 
I don't. So, and I only wanted two kids and I had two kids. So, yeah. but I could carry them. Yes. But you could deliver them. Yes. There you go. Well, there you wow. go. That's what a, that's what a team. sci-fi book. <laughs> that's, our, that's our next one. All right, go. Okay. So we are actually getting to, a, we are leading to the next question in a way. So in talking about Stray, you mentioned, I think you even said it earlier today that you were looking for hot spots, the shame. Like I heard you say on a podcast, you shared a quote about where there's a wound, there's a story. And we talk about this a lot, Corinne and I, about, you know, writing from your wound. And I assume when you find the wound, you know it, is that right? How do you go about looking for the hot spots and then how do you write from them well how do you go about looking for them it's not pleasant <laughs> so I'll, I'll spoil that for yeah. our listeners that is a Roland Barthes quote from I believe morning diary no that's from the opening of lover's discourse I think if you have a writing practice, let's say you're a different writer than I am, but you have a writing practice where you write a thousand words a day, five days a week. And sometimes you're just telling, sometimes you're just practicing dialogue, sometimes you're describing a place over and over again, working with language. I think if you read over those 5,000 words at the end of the week, certain sentences would be electric and the rest would be dead matter. And if you think about what's motivating those sentences, it's often not stylistic. It's not just Joan Didion works in triplicates, like three adjectives at the end of a sentence. And I don't have an example off the top of my head, but literally open any Joan Didion book. She has such an interesting syntax, but that is not what makes her work alive. To finish the Didion comparison, she has an essay called In the Islands about going to Hawaii with her family. And in the first paragraph, she's describing Waikiki Beach. She's describing the hotel. And then at the end, she says, my husband and I have come here in lieu of filing for a divorce. And then she goes on to talk about the Vietnam War and the history of Hawaii. And she never talks about her husband again. And that is the white hot spot that makes the rest of the essay, I mean, from a craft perspective, it's what gives the essay tension, that something is at stake. And as a reader who's not reading for craft, it like gives the essay like a little bit of energy. You're just like, oh, the Vietnam War is very scary. All these, all these hotels opening on the beach and development, very threatening. <laughs> so I think that reading your own work, reading other people's work, is a good way to familiarize yourself with that. But also following your obsessions in a way, they'll always lead you back to your original wound. Like I have a true crime obsession that has always felt to me as auxiliary to my obsessions, like 19th century literature, but they both have to do with my mother. You'll start to see that everything kind of funnels down to a fear of death, a fear of abandonment, a lack of self-worth. I mean, what, what, what are we all dealing with here? We're all dealing <laughs> right. with the same stuff. The human condition. Right. The human yeah. condition, yeah. how, you know... Ugh. transient life is and grief but you have to read a lot of sentences that are safe before you start to see what you're circling mm. what a great answer it i think that was. feels like the culmination of a lot of things kate and i have been circling yes. around that was amazing We're really said really, yeah really set off some light bulbs for me but i want to stay with your wounds <laughs> something that you had talked about i think this was in the swanee review podcast you were talking about matt as the love interest 
And early in your relationship, you said you were very unsure that it would work because you were too different. And you described, at the end of the day, there are people that trust the world and there are people that do not. For those of us who do not, things like loving, taking care of yourself, they're infinitely harder. They require a lot of work. And that in and of itself is beautifully stated. And it's a simple fact that I think if you aren't one of those people, feels impossible to understand. And if you are one of those people, feels electric. And I came out of poverty and addiction and a bad childhood with parents who were trying their best. And I became a lawyer. And I thought I had risen above and gotten out of that situation. And I couldn't stop feeling that I didn't belong. And not because I wasn't smart enough or not because I didn't do the work because I I had, but because I never really learned to trust. And that was people and myself. It's just you're born that way or born into a family where you have to rely on people who are at best unreliable. I don't know if you want to talk about that or if you want to go to what I think is a bomb for this idea, which is on page 231 of Stray, the last paragraph. What? You're like, where's the answer? I'm <laughs> turning to page oh 231. I mean, we don't receive the things we want because we deserve them. Most of the time we get them because we are blind and lucky. It's in the act of having the daily tending that we have an opportunity to become deserving. It's not a place to be reached. It's a constant betwixt and between. And it's in that hollow liminal space that I think, I hope, humility can be achieved. When you were talking, I was thinking about Icarus flying too close to the sun. People have always said that story is about hubris, and I've always thought that it was about being born in my family and self-destructing before you could reach the heights, but being permitted to ascend, but not being permitted to stay, that that wasn't our fate. And I have thought a lot about how to deserve the life that I have. And I use that verbiage. I used it in that paragraph. I use it constantly. And my husband, Matt, who Corinne just mentioned, will always say, what does deserve mean? Like, why wouldn't it be yours as a birthright? Why wouldn't joy or abundance or safety just be yours? Why do you have to owe something? What sort of, like, karmic debt are you paying off that you you have to suffer in order to balance out the good in your life. And I mean, this is, when I say textbook, I mean, there is a te- there is a book somewhere in this office, Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's textbook. <laughs> and yeah. Corinne, when you say that no one can teach you, like your parents are supposed to teach you. And I think it has less to do with geographical stability and more to do with unconditional love. Whatever that means, the appearance of it, this sense that your parents, unfortunately, sometimes it's the sense that your parents aren't changing all the time, right? And I think there's a way to change and not be erratic about it, to change and, I hope, and not completely destabilize your children because it is too late for me. I'm not going to be cured. Even if I started taking antidepressants tomorrow, I would not be cured of a general distrust, this feeling of the other shoe about to drop, which is also just really common that every good thing in my life 
could be taken away. And what's really interesting about, like, in a sort of abstract way, what's interesting about that is that if you follow it through, this belief in predetermination seems to go back to God, right? If I really believed in free will, a lot of that storytelling would have to be removed because I could choose. I could just keep choosing good things and my life would be good the way that other people's are good. And they sort of accelerate and ascend and they don't plateau and they never dive. But I seem to have this other belief that I can't escape my blood. But that's, that's a very, like, that fatalistic belief. It all goes back to God, and I don't believe in God. So I'm somewhere in the middle of this old mode of storytelling and this sort of, like, what does it mean if I really can just create the life I want? So I don't know. What yeah. was the question? I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> God, no, I mean, yeah, I talked about the bomb, and you've just expanded on that a lot. And I do think that... Icarus, I see that in whole yeah. new light now. And it is, it's it's about being allowed to ascend, but never quite get there because it melts and you just believe that you can go, but you'll never really get there. I want to go back to Sweet Bitter a little bit. You were doing early press for Sweet Bitter and someone asked you, why are we obsessed with our characters' likability? And you responded, I was asked a question on a panel about the pressure to make characters likable. I didn't go first. I listened to two very talented male writers talk about likability, and essentially they both said, that's not a real pressure. People love to look at their worst selves. People love to see obsession and madness. And I was thinking, people hate to see women in morally ambiguous territory. They are so uncomfortable when it's not part of a genre like Gone Girl or Girl on a Train, and we're having a voyeuristic experience. It's entirely different for female characters. People come up to me, men and women, who tell me that the prose is really great, but the main character is so unlikable. How far do you think we've come, if at all, since you spoke about Tess in that light? Zero. What about the people on the internet who tell me that the main character of Stray is unlikable? Like, whoops. Oh, my God. Uh, Did you see that part about it being a memoir? Um, I mean, it hasn't changed. I do a lot of television work. And so occasionally there is a piece of art that feels like it's going to be paradigm shifting. And the two that come to mind in television would be Fleabag and I May Destroy You. First of all, those are half hours that aren't quite comedies and aren't quite dramas, which is a brand new field where people don't quite know what to do with them. And every single meeting I'm in, people say that they're looking for something as raw. And I'm using quotes here because raw means unlikable (laughs) in a lot of ways, unfiltered, not pleasing. And those two shows are outliers. They are not the dominant characters that we are seeing across the board in media. There is so little space. You know what else I hear in television all the time is people love of Don Draper and Walter White, and that's Mad Men and Breaking Bad, respectively. If you can think of a single movie or television show that has a female character as complex as Don Draper, I'll pay you. Yeah. Uh, like I'll pay you $20 yeah. right now. And not just like a one-off, right? Like right. a Blue Jasmine. Mm-hmm. I've never watched a Woody Allen movie. I take that back completely. 
but I've heard yes. this Woody Allen movie. Kate <laughs> right. Blanchett plays a despicable character, but she is not at the helm of 10 seasons of television. Right. And right. she has to have an epiphany. She has to <sighs> change and become good. We are all very excited by the possibility of breaking a woman and making her more conventionally palatable. Every bad girl narrative, right? Yeah. I'm now, yeah. now I'm in TV land, but like you think of when yeah. the bad girl moves to town on Beverly Hills 90210, like <laughs> she's there, first of all, to cause trouble and right. then either be exiled or married. One yes, or the other. Right. Tamed, yes. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. To be possessed mm-hmm. by someone else. Mm-hmm. And so I find Fleabag and I May Destroy You aside, which are specific also because they're creator-led yes, in such a way, right? right? Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. That the note comes over and over and over again. No one in publishing would ever say that to me. It's just on me to receive the feedback once the book is out. I mean, at least the people I work with it can off are very excited by different iterations of what women can look like and I would say that publishing in general is still like a pretty safe space I don't know that you can be on the bestseller list in the same way but I read wild dark books I mean this Patricia Lockwood book is a great example and I was just reading Darcy Steinke's Suicide Blonde and that which is from long ago but she's horrible it's outrageous but you have the voice you're you have an experience Experience and voice. And so I don't know if audiences have shifted. I think that to say that they've shifted would be saying that misogyny has changed. And considering we've been out of our presidency for like five minutes, I'm pretty sure that misogyny has not disappeared. I think my life experience has told me, for the most part, that men don't like women very much. And that's not, oh, I've dated a misogynist. That's not the men I tend to surround myself with, and it's not the men that my friends have married, but I do not blind myself into believing that that represents the world at large. Yeah. You know, I don't date those guys or didn't before I'm married. <laughs> I love my husband and my my friends don't either. And I think it was more getting out into the world of entertainment where I was like, oh my gosh, all, what, all of you people feel this way about a woman because she, what, exercises some agency, doesn't count how many people she's had sex with. She's looking for experiences in life. I mean, it's, it's it's wild. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I don't subtle, think we've come. It's subtle and pervasive. I yeah, there's yes. no there's no way people will point to outstanding works of art and say that it's progress, but those works have always been there and it's kind of an excuse to not progress. Right, right. Oh, you have yours. You have your Exactly. Exactly. Be happy. You get to vote. Remember you're voting. (laughs) You're like a person. Yay. No, we're not going to pay you. No, no. The same? Oh, God, not the same as men. No. No, but you're you're voting. And, you know, generally, you can almost get an abortion. You can think about it. You could drive a few states. In some states, yes. Oh my god. Oh yeah. So we love the unlikable female protagonist. The other thing we love that we have to ask in our little time left is astrology. And what is so great on here today is that we have all three fire signs. We have a fire yes. sign trifecta. I am a Leo, Corinne is an Aries, and you are a Sagittarius. Oh my God. And I understand that your entire family is fire signs. So I just I have to ask about that. 
What's that like? My (laughs) God. First of all, Sag, I'm Sag with Leo rising. So I'm like fire, fire. And my husband is Sag with Taurus rising. And I'm like, I see this all. I see everything about you with this Taurus rising. So Julian, my son is a Sag. My daughter Paloma is a Leo. Let me tell you that when we had Julian, we did not stay in one place. The longest was the first four weeks of his life and then we take off we are just out of there and the pandemic of course has changed that and my daughter paloma came during the pandemic when we were housebound for the first time in our life like before julian was born i lived half the year in new york like it was always a hate feeling tied down typical sag it's actually the reason i don't own a home it just terrifies me to not be able to like break your lease if something came up or to just be like stuck like cemented into the ground Um, this is so corinne by the way she's nodding her head she's not a sag but this is you're like speaking her language for sure but go ahead and Paloma comes, and she is a Cancer Leo cusp. And Mm -hmm. between the pandemic, or perhaps it's astrology, she does feel much more comfortable in our house. And I can tell. And she's also a baby, but the other baby was like five. Yeah. No, you can tell. It is. And, you know, Leo is not, not all fire signs are the same. Leo is a fixed fire sign. Kate has lived in her hometown. Doesn't lived in one place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the fixed... friend lives in her own. She's a Leo. Lives in her hometown. Carly, if you're yeah. listening, this is you. Yes. yes. The See? fixed yeah. fire sign. It's a different animal. Aries are cardinal and Sagittarius are mutable. So there's always oh. the change aspect in those two. But the fixed fire sign is a different animal. Yeah. So I'm not surprised she brings that energy to your house. Yeah. Um, I was worried it was going to be a cancer first. It, yeah. She was going to be a cancer for a moment and I was like what is she going to do with us right. crazy people but she came out on the right side because <laughs> both of our mothers are cancer Kate and yeah. I our mothers wow. are cancer so. yeah. my, my mother's water as well we're not alienating anyone <laughs> I mean maybe but only later. although my sister's a Virgo and Ooh. she was when she was giving birth she was going to have a Libra who came early but she was like hey, she's going to be a Libra and I was like oh anything but Virgo Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is my son. Virgo men are different, but we loved right out of the gate in Stray. You had Mm. us hooked at the top of page four when you talk about a bird falling down near your house and you're wondering why it chose to die there. I stare at the bird and wonder why it chose me to witness its death. I've always been ashamed of the Southern California mysticism I've kept, but there it is. The belief in a divine pattern just outside my field of vision. It's given me this seeking frame of mind that never resolves or rests, but wants to move me closer to a fundamental truth. Mystics, I find, ask why before who, what, where, when, how, a tendency that leaves them bereft of practical knowledge. And this is Los Angeles, a town full of oracles, con men, real estate speculators, all high on self-delusion, self-gratification, marijuana, and a shitload of quartz. So perfect for L.A. So Sagittarius also yeah. now that we're just like textbook. So I wondered, do you still feel that way about your skepticism? Have you embraced it a little bit more that you've come back again to L.A.? No, I'm still embarrassed 
to be in Los Angeles. I suffer from a condition that I think most former New Yorkers suffer from, which is a belief that real life is only happening in New York and that I've given up in a way by mm, being here. And that said, I'm never going to leave. I'm going to leave LA. I'll never leave California and I'll definitely never live in New York again. But I have gotten slightly more woo-woo, but like compared to my friends, it's not even worth right. mentioning. Like right. I love astrology, yes. but I, I'm still not seeing psychics. I try to keep some of that like East Coast cynicism that I earned in the 12 years that I lived there. And there's a lot that goes into that, though. Like I still think that film and television writing is less writing than writing novels, which probably isn't true, but it's an ingrained belief. Like before I wrote Stray, I believed that a memoir was a lesser form than a novel, that there was something not literary about it. And I generally just believe that New Yorkers are better people. <laughs> more interesting. Like everything about LA is a touch more suburban. And so I say that, but if you've read Stray, you know how wildly in love with California I am. And I think I'm going to live here for the rest of my life. It might be Northern California and I might take three months off to go to Spain and New Orleans, but the mountains, the ocean, and I don't know if it's from growing up here, but the I'm in love with the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. I want to yeah. be close to it. It does have a real draw. I mean, obviously, lots of people go there. But even as a New Yorker, I'm a native New Yorker. And LA just calls to me. It's probably not coincidence that I married a man who was born and raised in Southern California. So it does have a draw for sure. So at the beginning of Stray, you start with a portion of a Frank O'Hara poem. We'd love to have you read it. It's amazing. And then I'd love to hear after you read it, why you chose to start with that poem and the role poetry I know has played in your life and in your writing. Oh, I love this poem. I didn't know yeah, I was going to read. I was so going to read Frank. I would have oh. prepared differently. <laughs> this is from his poem Mayakovsky. Now I'm quietly waiting for the catastrophe of my personality to seem beautiful again and interesting and modern. The country is gray and brown and white and trees, snows and skies of laughter always diminishing less funny, not just darker, not just gray. It may be the coldest day of the year. What does he think of that? I mean, what do I? And if I do, perhaps I am myself again. So that poem gets quoted a lot. There's a paragraph in there that now I'm quietly waiting for the catastrophe of my personality to seem beautiful again and interesting and modern is probably one of the most oft-quoted Frank O'Hara passages. And the rest of the poem is so fascinating because it's about lost love and a kind of depression and a living in a liminal purgatory, which winter can sometimes feel like. But this last part, it may be the coldest day of the year. What does he think of that? I mean, what do I? And if I do, perhaps I am myself again. This calling back to yourself and your own sense of agency and that 
your own thoughts and beliefs matter more than any external validation and factor. That to me seems like the seed of recovery and health in general. And so I was very excited to frame that poem in a new light beyond the like sad manic pixie girl who's like, now I'm waiting for my personality to to not be such a bummer. Beyond that, it's about coming back to your own voice, not asking what other people think of X, Y, and Z, but what do I? I love him. I used his poem, it's untitled, Light Clarity, Avocado Salad in the Morning is the first line of it, and it was tacked up on the wall for Sweet Bitter. And I reference it all the time when I'm talking about how to write about food, because it's like a post-coital meditation, this poem. But the avocado salad in the morning, he (laughs) says that and you're there. You're just Mm -hmm. in the room with him. And so that he can talk about very abstract things. He's such a great poet. And bring you through like a Coca-Cola bottle or a song that's playing on the radio. We love Frank. Did you talk more about poetry in your writing life? and how it influences you. Yeah, I have been reading poetry since I was very young, and it started with like a Dorothy Parker and a St. Vincent Millay and evolved to a Sylvia Plath, and I always found that it was expressing something that didn't make sense. In the way that literature and narrativizing in general makes sense of the chaos of our experience, I do feel that poetry being a sort of broken form in a lot of ways mirrors our experience more accurately. I love that poetry asks questions and doesn't have to answer them, which is something that the novel can't really do. And I've been reading it my whole life. I mean, I've had teachers who are like, steal from the poets, and I kind of agree, (laughs) not advising people to lift lines from (laughs) poems, but it's more when I'm stuck, I'll read a poem and I'll say, that's the feeling that I'm going for. And like, oh God, the image of a cucumber as a fresh green clock, that's shaken me up. And that that wasn't a poem actually, but she is a poet. That was from Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking Uh, About This. I finished that book and I'm still like fresh green clock like a cucumber falls in her lap and she is a poet which you can tell when you read the book that shakes something open in me and there is I don't want to make generalizations about poetry but it does seem to be seeking something beyond realism it does always seem to be aimed at a larger abstract and oftentimes more mystical sense of what language can communicate not just here is a story a journey that moves from A to B and and so I started posting I had like three followers before Sweet Bitter came out and I thought, what is social media for? (laughs) What is it for and what can I contribute? I have this beautiful collection of poetry that I've been collecting my whole life and there are better food photographers and there are (laughs) people that are better regular photographers, they're better cooks, there are people who travel more and are better at interior design. But I have these poems. You can find a little corner of the internet with people who enjoy a Carl Phillips poem. That's a win. Absolutely. We definitely want to hear if there are books or TV shows or movies, anything that you might think our listeners would be interested in that you're loving. Fun. I talked about quite a few books. Mm -hmm. What else do I have up here that I'm really into right now? Oh, I haven't started this yet, but I think I'm going to be into it. The Book of Difficult Fruit. 
mm. by Kate Lebo. Arguments for the tart, tender, and unruly with recipes. This came so highly recommended to me. I'm also just started Celia Chang's self-portrait. She had a relationship with the painter Lucian Freud, but she herself is also a painter. It's an artistic coming of age while under the, I don't want to say under the thumb because I think it was a generally loving relationship, even though Lucian Freud's considered to be not so nice to women. We'll see where it goes, but I've been really enjoying biographies of artists lately. I just read Fierce Poise about Helen Frankenthaler in 1950s New York, which is just so enjoyable. And then Ninth Street Women is also a really great one, if you guys haven't read that. I haven't, I've, but that's you're the third person that's recommended it to me so that's a done deal for me once it's it gets a thousand to the third. pages you just yeah. kind of like dip in and out and when you want to see how other women do it it doesn't matter if they're visual artists or actors or singers or writers but how how do they make art what does their life look like I find that to be very grounding absolutely yeah and and inspiration doesn't put itself in only the novelist or only the screenwriter. It goes across medium. So we know you're working on a lot of amazing things, especially promoting this gorgeous paperback of Stray. But is there anything you can share that you're working on generally? There's like nothing that I can share. (laughs) I will say I have like so many things in development. And then I am working on a third book and it is set in Los Angeles. Hopefully I will have more news on that this year. But Right now, it's been film and TV work, which is not a lesser form, even though I have that bias. It's still writing. It's still storytelling and immensely creative and collaborative, which is different. It is wonderful. So you're pushing all all of them forward at once. You're not choosing one. I you can't. No, the one you choose will never happen. Right, that's true. You just you just keep doing your work. My husband is learning. Because this is kind of new for me. Sweet Bitter was one thing, but to be working on film and TV that is not based on my own material is new for me. And he's getting used to it. And it just never... You can be in negotiations for six months. You can think something's happening and it disappears tomorrow. You can think someone's attached. It's such a mindfuck. Yeah, well, we're very excited to see whatever it is. I hope to have news about the book this year. Thank you, Stephanie, for talking to us. I was very nervous about talking to you. Not for any other reason. Kate was like, that doesn't make any sense. And I think it's that I see in you or you reflect back to me parts of myself that I generally find to be invisible. And that is wonderful and heady and scary. It's a huge compliment. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Stray is out in paperback now. Thank you both so much for having me. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. 
every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.